0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: Hey, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Lifeline for the 7th day of December. That's right, the 7th of December.
2: We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington... The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stay tuned to WOR for further development. We interrupt this program to bring you a special broadcast. Here's the bulletin. Washington, the president decided today after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor and Manila to call an extraordinary meeting of the cabinet for 8.30 p.m. tonight and to have congressional leaders of both parties join the conference at 9 p.m. And now we take you to Honolulu. No matter how long it may take us, To overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory.
1: listening that are shocked at this news and hadn't heard it any point earlier today, hadn't seen it on uh, Facebook or anything, well, um, stay tuned. Tonight in the 6 o'clock hour, we'll tell you a bit more about what happened. And by the way, this is not today's news. This is one of the most key and pivotal historical events in the history of the world that occurred 76 years ago today. Details tonight in the 6 o'clock hour. Also, we're going to talk about a Swirling controversy, not just in Washington, D.C., but in the Middle East. The decision by the president to officially move the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Dr. Alex McFarland, religion and culture expert, is going to join us to talk about the implications of this decision that's coming up later on in tonight's program. We lead off, though, with a story that sadly is back in the news once again, and I suppose. It kind of comes down to the question why seemingly going after nonprofit crisis pregnancy centers and a group of elderly nuns seems to be good jurisprudence in the mind of California State Attorney General Xavier Becerra is beyond me, but that seems to be on his agenda yet once again. Lori Windham senior counsel with the Beckett Fund gives us more details. Now, Laurie, I thought once this thing had made its way to the Supreme Court, May of last year, they sent it back down to the lower courts. We had involvement by the president, certainly a mandate coming through, I think, the Department of Health and Human Services that essentially said, hey, leave him alone, would you? Why is this all of a sudden back on the radar screen for not just the California AG, but Pennsylvania's as well?
3: Well, I have to say it came as a big surprise to us. We thought that this case was going to be over. The government has finally done the right thing, admitted that it was wrong all along to go after religious groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor, uh, like religious universities, and try and fine them tens of millions of dollars for refusing to do things like cover the week after pill in their health care plans. As you say, we got a win at the Supreme Court, we got an executive order from the president, we got a new rule from Health and Human Services. The same day that rule came down, Attorney General Becerra filed a lawsuit saying that it was unconstitutional that it was violating the rights of California and several other states to try and protect groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor.
1: Is there some kind of a hue and cry here where there protests on the street or the threat of strikes going on or, or, or a memo that went out that I missed, Lori, that said that everybody's all upset about this. And therefore, we need to have uh, the involvement by the attorney general because we just can't tolerate the notion of providing a religious exemption for something like this. I mean, I, what's the other than maybe I don't know. Do I smell a run for the governorship in California? What's the what's the impetus behind this?
3: Well, you know, Craig, I must have missed the memo and and, uh, the protests, too, because you're right. I think this just boils down to political grandstanding. You have an attorney general in California. You have an attorney general in Pennsylvania who seem to want to make a name for themselves by suing the president. And the really terrible thing is that they are willing to put services to the poor at risk in order to do that.
1: And I have to wonder if there's not a little bit of a disconnect here that it just seems to be, I don't know, grandstanding, a waste of time, certainly taxpayer resources, because at the end of the day, wouldn't the, the decisions in the religious exemption um, decision regarding Hobby Lobby, as well as the, the broader influence of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that would, would prohibit at the end of the day what the AG is attempting to do anyway?
3: Well, that's exactly right, and that's what we are arguing to the court. The Supreme Court has actually had to look at this issue five different times, and five different times they have protected the religious objectors. They did it in Hobby Lobby. They did it in several emergency orders along the way. They did it in the case last year for the Little Sisters of the Poor, And in that case, they told the government to go back to the drawing board to come up with a better solution to truly protect groups like the Little Sisters. The government finally has come around and has done that, and now you have these states running into court, as you say, wasting taxpayer money with these lawsuits uh, and trying to keep religious groups out. This is the really disturbing thing. They didn't sue the Little Sisters of the Poor directly. They sued the federal government and are telling the California court the Little Sisters of the Poor can't even have their day in court to defend their own exemption, an exemption that is only there because they went to the Supreme Court and won.
1: And, you know, all of this, sort of the, the the driving force behind this, of course, were aspects of the Affordable Care Act that compelled this to be done. Uh, and that piece of legislation, you know, once again, not to pick on Nancy Pelosi, but the now infamous line, well, pass it and we'll figure out what's in it. Well, we passed it and figured out there was a lot of really bad and awful stuff in it that included this mandate that, quite frankly, provided up front no religious exemption. And, of course, it required organizations to spend money and ate up lots of taxpayer dollars to take it all the way to the Supreme Court in the case of Hobby Lobby in order to get a decision and even though it seems as if, all right, finally the level heads have prevailed and we recognize that there's a little thing called the Constitution that kind of makes what they're trying to do a little bit of a problem here and so let's at least say to religious organizations, to those who have a um, uh, strong feeling about this from a religious or moral um, uh, perspective to give them breathing room but apparently not and this seems to be and maybe i'm reaching here lori but this seems to be an overarching anti-pro-life agenda that has been not only part of the agenda coming out of the state capitol here in california but in specific part of the agenda of california attorney general xavier becerra i don't know what acts he has to grind but apparently there's one there
3: Well, you know, Craig, it gets even more disturbing than that. When the Affordable Care Act was passed, there was nothing in the statute saying you must have a contraceptive mandate. It just said you have to cover preventive services for women. They were up in Congress talking about things like mammograms and uh, heart screenings and diabetes screenings. And then some bureaucrats in back rooms at HHS decided that this meant there was a nationwide mandate to cover the week-after pill and the morning-after pill. And Only after years of litigation did the government come to its senses and decide it could do better. And now you have a situation where this mandate is still in place. It hasn't gone away. It still applies to people across the United States. All the government has done is create a sensible exemption to protect people who can't in good conscience provide these things. And now you have the state of California coming in and pretending this this terrible thing has happened and that it's unconstitutional and that it's somehow depriving people of rights just to create an exemption. The underlying law is still there. So the idea that it's somehow especially bad if you step out and you do the right thing to protect conscience is a really troubling one.
1: well, and when you had the example again here in California of compelling Nonprofit crisis pregnancy centers to promote the fact that abortion services are available as if there's any woman in the United States that isn't aware of that, but yet not make the same compelling argument before Planned Parenthood and abortion clinics that would make people upfront aware that alternatives to abortion are available. Demonstrated again not only the heavy handedness of the state of California, but the single track pro-abortion mind that this state has under the stranglehold of liberal democrats and people like Attorney General Xavier Becerra that apparently is, you know, out to protect people from the boogeyman that exists only in his mind. It's a sad state of affairs, and I would imagine um, on the heels of this, so we're going to anticipate uh, more lawyering up, do you think, Lori?
3: Uh, I am sure we will. You know, you mentioned the crisis pregnancy center cases. Those are still going on. They may be uh, arriving at the Supreme Court soon. Uh, California and also, uh, well, a number of places have done it. We've also been involved in a case uh, in Maryland where they tried the same thing, trying to stifle speech and then force speech on crisis pregnancy centers. Um, I think that California has, well, I know they have asked for a ruling very soon on the contraceptive mandate. I think they will probably get it. Uh, And then I'm sure it will be going up to the next level, whatever happens. So I think that you're just going to see more litigation to come.
1: The hypocrisy of harassing a bunch of elderly nuns over something as mundane as this, uh, not to suggest that the mandate in trying to force them to provide contraception is mundane, not not at all, but as inane as the idea is from the government's Argument. Um, it, it just mind-boggling really is. But, you know, folks, at the end of the day, this is the kind of government that you get because this is the kind of government that you vote for. Our thanks to Lori Windham, senior counsel with the Beckett Fund. And uh, Lori will no doubt continue to keep us posted as the story of, once again, the little sisters of the poor being in the bullseye, because heaven knows we need to be protected from the acts of a bunch of elderly nuns. What will the world come to otherwise, Right. Wow. 517. Let's get a look at traffic right now over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael Bennett's got a look at your ride home on this Thursday. Michael.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: In the wake of the announcement by the White House that the United States will eventually relocate its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the U.N. Security Council will be holding an emergency meeting tomorrow. This, of course, will include eight of 15 member countries on the council that have asked for the meeting. Today, Palestinian protesters and Israeli troops clashed in what Palestinians are calling, quote, three days of rage as Arab leaders warn President Trump that the move had the potential to halt the Middle East peace process. Leader of the Palestinian Islamist group Hamas is calling for a new infatada against Israel. Sharon Reid has more on the story.
3: The call for that uprising follows President Trump's announcement that the U.S. is recognizing Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the Jewish state. Already there have been protests, some violent in Gaza and in the West Bank. And the leader of Hamas has said the Jerusalem decision effectively kills the Midi's peace process and amounts to a declaration of war against Palestinians. Another spokesman for the terrorist group says the decision opens the gates of hell, as he called for a Palestinian day of rage following Friday prayers in the region. Sharon Reed, NBC News Radio.
1: Now, we're going to attempt to sort of peel back the layers of this onion so we can better understand not just the president's decision, but its potential impact here. First, I think it should be noted that it is not unusual. In fact, it is a matter of practice that the United States locate its embassy in the capital of a country. Now, the way some of the news stories have been presented, you might have walked away with the feeling that somehow there's something really rogue going on here. Why is he moving it from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? Well, in large part because Tel Aviv ceased being the capital of Israel uh, back in 1949. In fact, uh, this month marks the anniversary. We're talking 670 years going on. So why has it been located in Tel Aviv all these years if in fact the Knesset is in Jerusalem and Jerusalem is the legal official capital of Israel? Let's find out more as we're joined by religion and culture expert, the director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics, located at the Christian Worldview Center north greenville university he is a syndicated talk show host best-selling author he is dr alex mcfarland and dr mcfarland always a treat and a privilege to have you join us on the program so what's all the noise about if in fact tel aviv has not been the capital of israel since december of 1949 why is this suddenly such a problem Wow.
4: Well, by the way, thanks for having me on, and Merry Christmas almost. It's uh, great to hear your voice again, and uh, great to be on with you. Uh, let me just say this. Um, as much as I've appreciated uh, presidents like George W. Bush, Donald Trump made more history in one day than George W. Bush did in eight years, really, in recognizing Jerusalem as capital of Israel and putting our embassy there. But the reason it's been not there for all these decades really is fear of Islamic terrorist reprisal. I mean, we say the Palestinians, but it's really terrorist groups. I mean, that for decades we've watched as, um, you know, terrorist groups, Islamic groups, Islamic nations have uh, refused to recognize Israel's right to exist. The U.N. has made literally dozens and dozens of uh, resolutions against Israel over the years, and Israel has been really bullied into giving up land for peace so many times, which has never really brought peace, and to show our solidarity with the nation of Israel, which, by the way, has been in the uh, region and in Jerusalem since 3,000 years before Islam even existed, Um, This was a a gutsy thing to do. He promised it on the campaign trail, and he's done it. Uh, I think it ultimately will – it it will maybe the most historic thing the president does.
1: And there's a bit of irony as well here about this in so much as if we could say, well, the president has now – sort of walked into uncharted territory here. Uh, This is something new. This is something unheard of. Uh, In fact, he's actually following the law. Uh, my understanding, Dr. McFarland, is that clear back in 1995, the United States Congress passed a law that required we relocate our embassy from Tel Aviv, which, as we know, it has not been the capital of Israel since December of 1949, and right. relocated to the proper capital of Jerusalem. And for some odd reason in the ensuing 22-something years now, we've just repeatedly failed to do so. Why?
4: Why, indeed? I mean, I think anything we say will be speculative, but it's not hard to speculate. Uh, it's it's really fear. It's been trying to have things both ways, trying to uh, placate uh, activists that are anti-Israel. Uh, and, and let me say what what's a, an irony as a Christian. There are so many young evangelical Christians that skew really anti-israel pro-palestinian that's another story in itself but but i think why we haven't followed this law that was passed 22 years ago um has really been lack of leadership uh, and lack of courage uh i I know that it might be hard for a lot of listeners to get their mind around this and I, i really don't believe this is just some uh campaign promise that's being fulfilled to placate some activists or anything like that, um, because I was in a meeting in May of 2016 in New York City with then-candidate Trump in uh, New York City, along with several other Christian leaders, and really um, he expressed great understanding of the Middle East uh, powder keg, the the political um, dynamics and how our only real ally in the Middle East, the only stable democracy, has been the nation of Israel, and that we would do well to you know, do the right thing and show solidarity and friendship with Israel. One of the keys to peace in the Middle East has been to um, shore up and stand with the nation that recognizes the same moral code, that our founders recognized when they framed the Declaration, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. I mean, our government and uh, the nation of Israel, their government is based on Exodus 20, which we call the Ten Commandments. And so one one of the best things that we can do to secure and preserve peace in the Middle East is to stand with Israel. And President Trump knows that, and he's definitely demonstrating that.
1: And as we point out, it's the law. I mean, This is not something that he came up with out of thin air. This is a decision right. that was made by Congress, passed by law in 1995. And you perhaps uh, well, follow up with the question, well, then, if it has been the law, how come every administration since 1995 has failed to act on this? Well, because they've always cited national security interests. At the end of the day, I don't know that there would ever be a good time that fundamentalist Islamists did not make hay out of this under any set of circumstances. So you ask, why now? Well, I I guess that leads to the question, well, why not now? Because if we were trying to find a period of time in which we thought this wouldn't ruffle any feathers, that simply doesn't exist on the calendar, does it?
4: No, it doesn't. You're right. Um, There's some things in, in life that are the right thing to do, and you don't wait until an opportune time, because an opportune time, or what we perceive might be a more opportune time, will never present itself. You know, li- listen, I remember when I came out, and I believe I was on your show, Craig, and I appreciate that, and I said, you know, if Trump is the candidate, uh, people need to vote for him, because, you know, we've really got two options, and in the minds of so many people, neither was an ideal option. Hillary Clinton, you um, certainly not the ideal candidate for millions of americans and then um there were a lot of people that wanted a lot of other names on the republican side and it was donald trump and i you know i begin to say look i think he's going to be the nominee and if he is people who need to vote for him uh i'm telling you and call it uh just this latent wisdom and courage and leadership on his part or call it the providence of god but donald trump is showing leadership that Roosevelt, Reagan, or one of the founders themselves would have been proud of, really.
1: Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our discussion. Talk a bit about the fallout angle and what the potential impact of this decision might be as the administration has announced that while the president has made the decision to move the embassy, there is no embassy yet in Tel Aviv. It will take a time to, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem. It will take time to build it. I can tell you that apparently there has been a, a plot of land there that we have a 99 one dollar a year lease on that is waiting for an embassy to be built on. Now, What's going to happen in the short term in terms of protests and reactions by the Palestinians, PLO at all? We'll talk about that coming up next. Our conversation with best-selling author Dr. Alex McFarlane continues right after this. Step aside, get your quick update on traffic. Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Hey, Michael, how are we doing this Thursday evening?
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: On the heels of the announcement by the administration that the United States will relocate its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, violence is now being reported between Israeli security forces and Palestinian protesters in Jerusalem's old city. NBC's Ron Allen reports on the Israeli reaction from Jerusalem. The IDF, the Israeli defense forces, are saying that they're on high alert and that they're sending battalions of reinforcements there because of an increase in rock throwing and Molotov cocktails, clashes between Palestinians. Palestinians and Israelis. Also more concerned about what might happen tomorrow, Friday, Friday prayers when many Muslim worshipers go to the mosque. The sermons will be all about J- Jerusalem and it remains to be seen how people will react to all that. Also, we've heard calls for days of rage, there's a call for a general strike here, there's a call to close the schools in the West Bank as well. All these measures to try and express the anger of the Palestinian community. And we're joined once again by Dr. Alex McFarland. He is a religion and culture expert, director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University, nationally syndicated talk show host, and the best selling author of more than 20 books, including his latest, Stand Strong in Your Faith. Dr. McFarland, in terms of reaction by the PLO, Hamas, Palestinians in general, what exactly for them is the beef? If, as we have acknowledged, Jerusalem has been the capital of Israel for the last 68 years. Why is there a bone of contention then about the United States relocating its embassy there?
4: Uh, Well, Craig, this is a great example of why ideas have consequences and worldview matters, because uh, in Islamic theology, um, Isaac is not the child of promise, Ishmael is. And, And really, you know, it's interesting, all of world history, uh, we can boil down to the fact that the world has been embroiled in a family squabble. Uh, I mean, really. Even though you know, Islam did not really exist until about 622 uh, AD, and we know that uh, the Jews had been in and around the nation of, or uh, the land of Israel, for three thousand years since you know, roughly three to 3,500, three thousand 3, to 3,500 BC. But they believe, and they are taught that uh, Ishmael is the child of promise. I was in Israel two years ago, and we were literally on the Temple Mount dialoguing with um, a group there that was kind of a, uh, I don't know, a public relations group. I mean, we're literally on the Temple Mount, and uh, one one of the ladies is passing out literature about Islam and said, welcome to Jerusalem, the city of the prophet Muhammad and and we begin a discussion and they begin to shout uh that Israel the Jews must be thrown to the bottom of the sea uh now we have part of this on film and you know any time you talk about this i mean people think you're being incendiary but but you've got to understand in the islamic world view the imams teach and Many, many Muslims the world over believe this—that you know the Jews are. I'm not even going to use the language they use, but they not only don't recognize Israel's right to exist, they really don't even acknowledge the humanity of, of Jewish people, um, and that is due to their worldview and their theology. Uh, and as as a nation, I'm not saying this as a Christian, although I am a Christian, and as a Bible believing Christian. Uh, I love the Jewish people, and I know many, many Jews that are followers of Jesus the Messiah, but I'm, I'm simply saying what I'm about to say as an American. Uh, we really need to stand with Israel from the standpoint of human rights. I mean, uh, you know, here's a people group that, um, you know, generally those on the left, Craig, uh, are, are quick to take up the cause of people they perceive to be, Uh, disenfranchised and downtrodden and and treated unjustly well my goodness throughout world history and certainly modern history if there's a group that's been treated unjustly time and again it's been the Jewish people and yet so many uh, young uh, millennials and liberals will be so quick to stand with the Palestinians who are the aggressors in the Middle East so uh, I you know, I'm glad that our our nation, our president, has has done this. But we, until the the trouble dies down, if indeed it will, uh, we're going to have to, um, you know, have a strong presence to keep the peace over there. Uh, what we Christians need to do is Psalm 122 and pray for the peace of Jerusalem.
1: Every president since Bill Clinton, when this was first passed into law by Congress in 1995, the requirement to relocate the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, every president has said, nah, we're going to hold off, and they've always cited national security interests. In your opinion, looking at this, what has changed? I mean, clearly from some of the rhetoric we've seen already, uh, the, the Palestinian side is going to make the most of this as they possibly can. Are there any inherent risks to all of this, or are there risks, in your opinion, that have to be taken in order to do the right thing?
4: Um, well, yeah, there, there are risks. But... I'm going to say this, and it's probably going to sound like I'm a a fawning fan of of President Trump, but what you're seeing is called courage, leadership, and integrity. Because, look, just for all of the presidents, you know, going back to the Clinton years when this became law, they'll say, well, we're just going to wait for a more opportune time. That's just kicking the can down the road. Uh, I mean, really, to do the right thing to honor one's word, and to show visionary leadership, yeah, it's risky, but it's much less risky than um, just continuing this open door to undermine the strength of the nation of Israel, to undermine our relationship with Israel. Really, for every day that embassy was in Tel Aviv, for every day we didn't recognize the nation of israel we were empowering terrorists i mean basically this has delegitimized so much of terrorism and and that gutsy as it might have been to do that is wise leadership
1: is there also though not the counter argument that in some cases for some terrorists this will embolden them that it will give them a another strike point another anger point to respond to
4: well, you know, there are always going to be individuals that are radical uh, and wrong in their viewpoint. But what it really needs to do – and by the way, let me just say this from a, a standpoint of, of American sovereignty. This this is a great thing to send a message to the United Nations that uh, the United States of America does not answer to the UN, and we don't ask the UN for permission to do the right thing as a nation. Um, and, you know, under, under Barack Obama, and certainly it would have been that way under Hillary Clinton, uh, and thank the Lord that she did not become the president, but we would have further become a, a, a subset of the UN, really. Um, but, you know, yes, this is going to embolden individuals, but nations that are anti-Israel and have a bent towards terrorism and trying to advance their agenda uh through violence rather than diplomacy. I mean what this says is uh the the two of the greatest military powers in the world, two nations that recognize human rights and objective morality, two nations that have the best intel in the world, these two nations, the United States of America and Israel are going to stand together. And um, I, I've been over there. A lot of a lot of listeners, no doubt, have as well. I mean, it, uh, much of much of Israel looks about like San Diego. Very beautiful, well manicured, orderly. You cross the Kidron Valley to the Palestinian e- area, and let me just say this: the Palestinians have had billions, billions, billions of dollars of American aid over the last forty years. And did they build desalination plants so they could create fresh water? No. Did they build infrastructure like roads and uh, water and sewer systems? No. They, they've used much, not all, but much of the U.S. aid for terrorism. And you, you look at Israel, that's a beautiful, thriving city where you know most anybody would be happy to live. And then you cross a few hundred yards away across the Kidron Valley, and it's like a third-world country, because it is a third-world
1: country. The the stark differences between the two is is immediately noticeable. Of that, there is no doubt. And one is called stewardship, and the other one is called utter lack thereof. Dr. McFarland, we're out of time. I sure appreciate you taking some time to unpack this issue for us today. We'll no doubt be hearing more about this story in the coming days and weeks as uh, protests continue in the Middle East. And... uh, work through all the details in relationship to what the folks at the U.N. are going to wind up doing about all of this as well. Dr. Alex McFarland, religion and culture expert, director of Christian worldview and apologetics at North Greenville University. Thank you for your time. All right, we're going to get a look at traffic right now and uh, the latest at the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. Michael.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right. Welcome back to the conversation. We're just about 10 minutes away from the hour of 5 o'clock. I want to talk to you for a moment about a very special opportunity, and particularly if you are somebody who considers yourself a a bit of a foodie. That means that you love the experiences of other cultures, other flavors, and would like to learn more about other types of cuisines, not only to sort of broaden your uh, palate experience, but as well to broaden your own cooking skills. If you think about where could you go to find the broadest variety of smells and flavors in cuisine? Can you imagine what country that might be? I'll make it easy on you. My first trip into India, restaurant, lunchtime, hadn't been in the country more than three or four hours And we settled down to the most incredible meal. And the one thing that struck me was that as we were preparing to eat, the waiter brought out this huge tray that had more spices of colors and flavors and smells than I had ever seen together in any collection of Spice Island (laughs) spice racks at the grocery store in my life. It was a phenomenal Experience. And in many ways, that describes what you will experience in a once in a lifetime opportunity to not only enjoy the sights and sounds, but also the flavor, the cuisine of India. Joining me now is Bay Area restaurateur and executive chef at Dosa of San Francisco, Anjan Mitra. And and Chef Mitra, great to have you on the program.
2: Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. That was that was a great
1: intro. <laughs> and you know, it it sort of is. I think it, it, in some ways, sort of um, um, encapsulates not just the culinary experience of India, but in particular, southern India. And uh, this trip that you're inviting folks to join you, and uh, Bay Area expert, he's a celebrity radio TV host. He hosts Eye on the Bay on Channel 5. Liam Mayklim is going to join you, and uh, the two of you are going to uh, take listeners on a really special... Nine nights, day, twelve day experience. That's not just the sights and sounds of India, but most importantly, an opportunity to really enjoy the cuisine. Which my experience is that it's as varied and broad as is the country.
2: Oh yes, absolutely. You know, it's it's uh, you know, India. India has about nineteen different culinary regions, and it's got you know, you know, you know, sort of massive myriad of spices, as as you just mentioned. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Bombay, which is now called Mumbai, and uh, there's so many regions, even though I grew up in there, in in, in India, there's so many regions of India that I have not explored. So I'm excited to go there, even though this is my my home country. I'm excited to go there to, you know, experience not just regional cooking, but also cooking, you know, with people at their homes. And, you know, the... There's so much variety in the food over there that you actually sort of get to sit down with people's families and eat with them and take a cooking lesson and visit a spice plantation. So um, this is exciting you know, for me, too, even though I'm, I'm Indian. <laughs> the dates,
1: <laughs> dates of this trip, country, of course, yeah. are going to be February the 25th through March the 8th of 2018. We mentioned it's 12 days, nine nights. And um, right. you'll get a chance to experience really a, a side of Indian cuisine that I think most people uh, stateside don't get a chance to explore. Now, here in the Bay Area, we're fortunate. We've got a lot of folks like you that bring different flavors from all parts of the country to the Bay Area palate. Uh, San Francisco, a lot like New York, is the one place where you can experience the flavors of the entire world. But I think the amazing thing about India is if you've gone to eight different Indian restaurants and tried 10 different Indian foods, you You've barely broken the experience of the overall culinary uh, uh, offerings, have you?
2: Uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Like most of, most of the restaurants in in the in the U.S. and the Bay Area represent maybe about two, three different culinary regions. We're uh, we're going specifically to, to to Kerala, which is which is in the south, the southwest. It's a very narrow state that hugs the coastline, and just you know just you know uh, characterized by. Uh, long lagoons, uh, you know, backwaters, which are they call the backwaters, and these essentially, you know, these little rivers that are meandering into the ocean and just, you know, massive coconut lagoons, uh, and, and, and like, of course, a lot of fishing, a lot of fishing villages and and natural harbors, and the food over there is, you know, is is driven by, obviously, what's available locally, which is fish and coconut and coconut milk and, and rice and, you know, just, you know, black pepper and, you know, just a wonderful array of spices and um yeah so it's it's you know we're also going to be uh you know in in addition to the that you know visiting you know, ayur rating treatments you know which is so tied to the food and uh uh you know just seeing some of the local you know floral fauna including you know, elephants and stuff like that you know.
1: And, of course, in addition to this amazing uh, foodie aspect of the trip, um, there's also an opportunity for an optional extension into Delhi and experience the Taj Mahal, which is, you know, one of the seven wonders of the world. If it's not on your bucket list, I got to tell you, it needs to be. And I want to encourage you to get more information about this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You get a chance, again, to uh, travel with one of the Bay Area's leading restaurateurs, executive chef of NALSA in San Francisco. They're on Fillmore Street and Gen Mitra. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, all the details available, you can simply call toll-free, 888-747-7501. That's 888-747-7501. Or go to nanjajourneys.com, N-A-N-D-A journeys.com to get complete details and I urge you don't delay do it soon again this trip takes off February the 25th through March the 8th and the sooner you get information and book your seats uh, the the better things will be and and again I think ultimately chef for folks that want to broaden their not only their um, travel experiences but also broaden the um, the palate uh, Indian food has so much to offer. People complain all the time and say, you know, I do my best, but after a while I get tired of the same old cooking. And here is a way that you can literally learn how to spice up your food that goes so much beyond what we kind of in a stereotypical fashion think as well, tandoori chicken and, and uh, curry. What else could there be? And the answer is the list is endless.
2: Right, Absolutely. So we're also going to a tea plantation, by the way, which is, you know, they they the tea drinking is actually very, fairly common in India, too. And, uh, you know, that's, that's another highlight of the, of the, of the trip, too. So, um, it's, um, you know, it's, it's going to be pretty well-rounded tip, trip, uh, with, uh, sightseeing, yoga sessions, you know, and, uh, and just a beautiful, beautiful area. And, and like, you know, Kerala is definitely considered to be one of the more beautiful states in India. And if you have to travel to India, this is the way to do it. It's it's, it's highly curated. You know, everyone's. You know, you know, India is not always an easy place to travel in. So I think, you know, having Nanda Journey is actually organized this. Every organize every single detail. Uh, really makes it kind of a much more accessible experience for people who might be a little apprehensive about going there.
1: Absolutely. Well, set aside your apprehension and get ready for an experience of a lifetime. I will tell you, for all the countries that I've traveled, and I think the last note was thirty six or thirty seven. Uh, certainly at the top of the list of places I want to go back to is India for just many of the reasons that Chef Mitra has mentioned. Now again, let me uh, encapsulate this for you. Nine nights, 12 days through southern India, you'll explore the food and spice markets, get a chance to visit with the vendors, take part in cooking lessons, as well as visit a spice plantation and learn all about the traditional organic techniques used to prepare the spices in the kitchen that can experience and really broaden your, your palate. Get more information and again you can simply call Triple Eight 747 7501. That's eight 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 seven four seven seven five zero one, 747 7501 Or get more information online at NANDA, N-A-N-D-A, NANDA Journeys. Dot com. And our thanks to Executive Chef. Hey, if you're up in the city sometime, check out his new location there at 1700 Fillmore Street in the city and uh, get a chance to experience dosa. If you've never had dosa before, not only at the restaurant, but what a dosa is, you got to try it. Our thanks to Executive Chef Nanjan Mitra for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Six o'clock, let's get a look at traffic for you right now. We'll get you an update from the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. Michael.